take your copy of God's Word out. Turn to the book of Micah in the Old Testament. Micah chapter 3 is where we'll be today. We've been working our way through this book during the Advent season. Uh, if you don't already have uh, uh, one of our Micah, actually it's a, a few of the uh, minor prophets journal, they are outside on the welcome table. You're free to take one of those. Free of charge. We're not charging for those. So Micah chapter 3 is where we'll be this morning. Let me read that for us. And I said, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at, a, at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision, and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. This is God's word. It's entirely true and it's given to us in love. Let me pray for us and then we'll jump right in. Father, thank you for these words from Micah, God, that remind us of who you are, that reminds us both that you are a God of justice, uh, that you will not let sin prevail, God, that you will deal with it. So God, we thank you that we see this pattern throughout the Bible and that we see it fulfilled in Christ. Help us to see that exact uh, same thing today as we uh, look at Micah chapter 3. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So years ago, I think it was about 10 years ago, I read a tragic story about a couple who became obsessed with raising a virtual baby. So much so that they neglected their real three-month-old daughter who ended up starving to death. As one police investigator reported, 
He said they indulged themselves in the online game of raising a virtual character so as to escape from reality, which led to the death of their real baby. They replaced reality with a lie and ended up paying the ultimate price. Well, in Micah chapter 3, we continue to see the leaders of God's people replace the truth and reality of God, the God of the Bible, with the wind and lies of the false prophets or the false preachers. And they too end up paying the ultimate price. Or could we say God's people, the nation, pays the ultimate price? So it's important for us to understand as we're reading through Micah because we might begin to think that Micah is actually written to these evil men who take advantage of God's people. It's actually not written to them. It's not addressed to them. It's actually addressed to the faithful remnant of God's people. And he's writing to them about who their God is, about where their peace should be found. So Micah wants them to see this through judgment. And he shows them this in three ways. One is through a misplaced appetite that we see in verses 1 through 4. And then a misplaced message that we see in verses 5 through 8. And then a rightly placed judgment in verses 9 through 12. A misplaced appetite, a misplaced message, but a rightly placed judgment. So first, a misplaced appetite. Now, imagine uh, if the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch, so all three branches of the U.S. government, were corrupt. All of them. Some of you are thinking they are all corrupt. But just imagine with me that they, there wasn't, and now, now there is. And they all worked together to do one thing. And that one thing that they all worked together to do was to oppress Americans. And so they all work together to do that one thing. Then you would begin to understand what was going on in Israel during Micah's ministry. The whole of chapter 3 addresses the leadership of Israel at every level. You you see it there in verse 11. He says, uh, its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination For money, at every level, they are corrupt. And so Micah begins here in verses 1 through 4 with their judges. These were men who were not only uh, supposed to know the law, but these were men who were to make judgments based upon this law that were equal and fair for all people, including those who who you would consider outcasts or on the edges of society. This is why Micah sarcastically asked in verse 1, Is it not for you to know justice? Is this not the one job that you have? And you can't even get that right. Because instead of having an appetite for justice, these judges actually have an appetite for those it is their responsibility to defend. They were not merely taking away land, like we learned last week. They were actually taking away life. They were killing people with their practices. 
And their practices are so brutal that Micah uses the most gruesome illustration that he can find in verses 2 through 3. Look there with me again. You who hate the good and love the evil. And here's his illustration. This is how Micah illustrates this. Who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones. Who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Micah says to them, you are cannibals. You are actually devouring God's people here. Now, throughout the Bible, this type of language uh, is used to describe the worst that could happen between people. Proverbs 30, verse 14 says, There are those whose teeth are swords, whose fangs are knives, to devour the poor from off the earth, the needy from among mankind. There are actually people like that. And then in Galatians chapter 5, verse 15 Paul is giving a warning specifically to the Galatian church about uh, what will happen if you don't love your neighbor, and particularly your neighbor that is found within the covenant community of the church. This was a problem, apparently, in, in, in Galatia. Paul says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. You'll eventually eat each other alive. So what we see happening in Micah chapter 3 verses 1 through 4 is those established uh, to protect the innocent and to punish the guilty do the exact opposite. They call evil good and good evil. So their appetite is misplaced. And for this, they will all be judged. The God as the chief justice will not allow, nor will he ever allow, injustice to prevail. And the ultimate outcome that we see here is, that, is what we see in verse 4. That these judges will eventually come to their senses when they are placed under God's hand of judgment. Finally, their eyes will be open to what they have been doing. And Micah says the way they will respond is that they will cry out to the Lord. They'll cry out. The sad thing here is Micah is not, obviously not, dealing with a bunch of atheists. He's not dealing with a bunch of people who are saying God does not exist or I don't believe in God. These leaders are very religious. Their law is based upon God's word. But it's their religiosity that blinds them to the fact that God will not go on rescuing them as they continue to sin against him. One commentator said, These leaders are members of God's outward kingdom, but they are not part of its inward spiritual kingdom. And the way we can say that now is they acknowledge God with their lips, but nothing of their lives say that they actually belong to him. Now this holds relevance for us today, doesn't it? Are you one who says you know God 
with your lips, but you live a life that no one would be able to find evidence to that claim. They may even laugh when you say that. You live a life primarily for yourself, but it's only when things get desperate, when you're suffering, that you actually cry out to God. Well, Micah says to those who live this way in Israel that God will hide his face from them. He will not answer them when they cry out to him. Which is probably the worst form of judgment. The worst form of judgment actually isn't the affliction itself, but it's the absence of God in the affliction. If you remember Jesus on the cross, the worst part of the cross was not the, the, uh, the whipping that he received before he went to the cross. It wasn't actually carrying the cross on his bruised and broken back. It wasn't the nails that were pierced into his hands and into his feet. It was the absence of God that was the worst part of his suffering. And God says, I will be absent from your midst. And the only way you reach this sort of predicament is when you listen to a misplaced message about who your God is. If you continue to have a a wrong message about who the God of the Bible is, constantly fed into your ears, this is where you'll end up. And we see that message in our second point in verses 5 through 8. In these verses, Micah moves from the judges of Israel to their prophets, whom we already know about from chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. We know that their message, Micah says, is a message of wind and lies. Their message is full of, of nothing. They're blowhards. It's what we would call them today. They only say things that uh, tickle the ears of their hearers. Their message is useless. So what we see happening here in Jerusalem is the religious system is joining the judicial system in protecting the guilty. So you have these judges who are acting uh, in a corrupt manner towards the people of God, and then you have the religious leaders affirming them in their sin. This is what is happening. The judicial system has essentially surrounded themselves with religious leaders who will tell them what they want to hear. Still happens today, doesn't it? They surround themselves in order to get away with their misdeeds. So moving from the abstract to the concrete again, Micah tells us in verse 5 what the message of wind and lies contains and its results. So Micah says in chapter 2, their their message is wind and lies. And now in verse 5, he is telling us what this message actually is. So they lead people astray by only giving satisfactory messages when they are satisfied. And unsatisfactory messages when they are not satisfied. So if you look there in verse 5, a full belly for these prophets, equals a peaceful message. 
An empty belly equals a message of war and violence. So these prophets are completely bribed, and nothing they say can be trusted. So obviously this is not the type of preacher that God's people needed then, and it's not the type of preacher that is needed now. As one commentator said, money spoke louder than God to these prophets. So unfortunately, there are churches and preachers that I know personally who are controlled by the purse strings of a few of their wealthier members. The members who come alongside them and whisper into their ears and uh, tell them how much they're giving and how much they're needed. And so long as you uh, say what we want you to say and do what we want you to do, uh, the checks will keep getting written. And we'll keep putting them in the offering basket. Just as long as you give us a message that we approve of. That's happening right now. And also the the other side happens as well. That I will scratch your itching ears with good vibe messages just as long as you keep the offering baskets full and keep me uh, comfortable. Well, the problem that Micah is faced with here is not that these prophets are silent, but actually the opposite. These prophets won't shut up. They continue to feed the people a message of wind and lies that only leads them further and further and further away from the God of the Bible. They're corrupting the image of God for God's people. In Matthew 18.6, Jesus talks about this very thing. He talks about people who lead others astray. And he says this, If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, if you're unclear with what Jesus is saying there, is a millstone is a very heavy stone that was used to to grind up grains. It had to be very heavy. So what Jesus is saying is that if you cause those who follow him to sin, it is better for you to wrap that millstone around your neck and jump into the ocean and drown and die. It's better for that to happen than for you to lead these people astray. Needless to say, there are many preachers today who need a millstone for Christmas. At least to remind them of Jesus' warning here. Because this message that Jesus has is just as serious today as it was for the prophets during Micah's ministry. Because in this matter, like Micah, we are dealing with more than temporal justice. Yes, temporal justice is good, but we are dealing with more than just that. We are dealing with the eternal destiny of the souls of men and women. Justice will never be had on this earth apart from Jesus changing people's lives. 
And because the sin of these preachers is giving a distorted view of God, it then leads to a distorted view of the gospel. Now, you may assume this is irrelevant to your life personally. You might, you might be sitting here saying, well, uh, God hasn't called me to be a preacher. Uh, he hasn't called me to stand behind a pulpit and to exposit God's word to a bunch of people every Sunday. So this isn't applicable, applicable to me. I am safe in this category. Uh, but I would argue that it is very much relevant to each one of you who calls themselves Christian. What sort of God do you portray to your co-workers? What sort of God do you portray to your classmates? What sort of God do you portray to your spouse? What sort of God do you portray to your children? John, I think it was Jonathan Edwards who said that your family is like your little church. How are you leading your little church in your home? What sort of God do you portray to your covenant family here at Christ the King Church? Is it a God who is passive? Is it a God who is tolerant? Is it a God who is only full of judgment and no grace? Is it a God who is only full of grace and no judgment? He's light on sin. Is it a God who is only useful when things get hard? But when blessing is upon us and we are, we are rich in life in every way, we don't need God. Is it a God like that? Is it a God who is only relevant and talked about during Christmas and Easter? Is it a God you say you believe in but don't have a relationship with? See, we too must be careful that we don't fall into the same trap as the false prophets of Israel. It's easy to stand back hundreds of years, uh, you know, separation here and point our finger at these men, at how they led people astray, and then say, then look at our own lives and say, we're doing the exact same thing with our family and with the people around us. We must be careful Otherwise, we fall into similar judgment. And just as we'll learn in our final point here, that if we did fall into a similar judgment, it would be a rightly placed judgment. It would be a judgment that God would be perfectly justified in giving to us. You may have noticed that verses 9 through 12 uh, sounds a lot like verses 1 through 8. And you'd be right. It'd be a good observation that you made in your Bible study there because it is basically Micah reiterating those verses. So Micah is walking them back through their sin. He wants them to see their wrongdoing, but he also wants God's people. He also wants this faithful remnant to see how God deals with sin and how God is protecting this faithful remnant. So we walk some back through. Verse 9, you detest justice. Verse 10, you build Zion with blood. 
Verse 11, your leadership at every level is built on bribery and corruption. And this is why you'll be judged. And worst of all, they're blinded to all of this. They don't see it. They don't see their sin because then you have verse 11. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? Essentially saying, is not God with us? Is not, is not God for us? We are God's people. No disaster shall come upon us. They are blind to their actions. They don't believe God will actually do them harm. They, 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 they misplace their peace in these physical realities, and they assume that because they are getting rich and because they are comfortable, that God is blessing them. So he won't do any harm to us. He won't take all of this away. This is blessing to us. So their peace is misplaced because their peace comes from the physical reality of real estate and financial security and their own well-being. We know that today is health and wealth, a prosperity gospel. And so Micah retorts that the God they believe won't do them harm is actually about to destroy the concrete sight of his presence amongst them. So there will be nothing left, Micah says, when God is finished with you. And that is both physical and spiritual. So during Micah's ministry, the city of Jerusalem was booming. Urban development was growing. The city's skyline reached upward and building projects were flourishing. So think New York City. This is what Jerusalem was like. And so the judgment of verse 12 is a devastating and unbelievable judgment. There is absolutely no way that God is going to bring all of this down. This is fruit. This is blessing. God will not do that. Yet Micah says, everything you've worked for, everything that you have gained will be leveled. It would become a wilderness. It would be like it was never there, Micah says. I think sometimes we see these, uh, these uh, you know, apocalyptic type movies or read those types of books. And you know, there's, the cities are, are there. They're just kind of a shell of what they once were. And so you can still see some of the buildings that are present and things like that. But for Micah, the image that he is trying to give to the people here is that that, would, that will not be the case. There will not be these empty shell of buildings. It would be as if Jerusalem was never there. The trees would grow up. The wild animals would roam there once more. It would be a desolate place. So the language that Micah uses, though, in verse 12 is not just language to say that your city will be no more. The language that he's actually using here is language of death. Whenever someone is said to go out into the wilderness, essentially in the Bible, essentially that mean, meant you were going to your death. The wilderness was not a good place to go. 
And so that's the language that Micah is using. And he's using it to both communicate a, a physical death, but also a spiritual death. So essentially saying that professing belief in God does not mean one has actually gained eternal life. And this remains to be something we still see in the church today. We have people who think simply professing belief with no outward change will gain them eternal life. Just to say, I believe in God with no outward change. James 2.19 says this, Even the demons profess belief in God. And the demons aren't changing. They are still servants of the evil one, of our enemy. Even they believe, James says, and they shudder at that. So what you've actually done is you've made an empty profession. So let the, let the words in Matthew, or Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 27 be an evaluation tool for you, both for yourself and for others. And you can write, this, uh, write that, um, that reference down so that you can go back and meditate upon it later. But it says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven... On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The prophets and leaders of Jerusalem bear bad fruit. And because of this, the judgment of verse 12 is a rightly placed judgment. And the reason we know that it is a rightly placed judgment is because of the results that we heard Bonnie Fielder read for us from Jeremiah chapter 26, verses 16 through 19. And I just want to read that, those verses again for us, just in case we didn't catch it the first time. It reads like this. Then the officials and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, This man does not deserve the sentence of death, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. And certain of the elders of the land arose and spoke to all the assembled people, saying, Micah of Morsheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and said to all the people of Judah, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, 
and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against them? But we are about to bring great disaster upon ourselves. Jeremiah 26, verses 16 through 19, puts Micah 3 into its historical context for us. So during Micah chapter 3, Hezekiah is now the king, and it's actually been 35 years since Micah preached the message of chapter 1, okay? And we looked at chapter 1 two weeks ago, so it's only taken us a couple of weeks to get through it. 35 years ago, Micah preached Micah chapter 1. So now, Jeremiah, we're in the, in the book of Jeremiah here. Jeremiah, uh, the people there are, say, are in a similar situation, and Jeremiah is preaching to them in a similar way as Micah is preaching to them. And he is on the brink of being killed for his preaching. Until some of the elders are wise enough to say, look, uh, didn't, didn't this happen before? Hasn't this happened to God's people before? And they remember Micah chapter 3, verse 12, which is Micah's judgment upon the people of God. One of the worst things that he could have said to the people of God, to this prospering nation of liars and fools. He should have been killed for his message. And the elders here in Jeremiah recognize he wasn't killed. He wasn't killed. Actually, the opposite happened. Instead of killing the messenger Micah, the king, King Hezekiah, fears the Lord. It drives him to, this message of judgment drives him to repentance and faith in the one true God. And what does it say? What does it say in Jeremiah? What happens? Did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against them? He relents. He pulls back. And this tells us much about who our God is, doesn't it? That he's not a God who, as R.C. Sproul said, negotiates his holiness in order to accommodate us. It's not a God that we have. But he's also not a God who forgets his promise to forgive He's not a God who forgets to show us mercy and grace. He's not a God who forgets to restore those who truly repent and believe the gospel. And he does all of this through Christ. I read Hebrews chapter 8 this morning in my Bible reading that said that quoting Jeremiah 31, the author of Hebrews says, God says, because of Jesus... Because of Jesus, I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. The only way, the author of Hebrews is saying, the only way you are kept from experiencing God's wrath and judgment is because Jesus has already done that on your behalf. He has taken on the full wrath of God for you and for me. And the crazy thing about this is that it's God 
who is perfectly justified in bringing the full amount of wrath upon every single one of us. It's God who sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might have peace that only Christ can bring. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, what an amazing message from your prophet Micah. What what an amazing way in which he sets up this disaster that he uh, clearly just drags us through our own broken predicament as, as, as human beings. And while all of this is true for uh, these leaders of Jerusalem, it's also true for us that we are completely hopeless apart in our own self, in our own works, in our own abilities. That in order for you to relent of your judgment, uh, you had to step in. You knew that we could do nothing to stop it. So God, we thank you that you are a God who uh, doesn't leave us alone, that you don't um, silence yourself forever, that you are a God who is faithful to your covenant, that you are a God who has brought a new and better covenant in Jesus. A covenant that is lasting, a covenant that that you will never break, even when we break it. Because Jesus is the one who has experienced all of your wrath and all of our suffering and even our death, so that we might be able to have peace with you. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen.